Yeah, it's, it's very, very bittersweet um, to have Aaron leaving us. It's bitter because we're going to miss him, but it's sweet because God's got incredible things in store for him. So I feel like uh, I can also sound very proud of older brother to know what you're up to and know where God's going to take you and how he's going to use you. It just gets me really, really excited. Um, I don't really know where I want to start, to be honest. We are a church. And a church is not a building that you go to. A church is not an event. It's not a program. A church is a family. And the reason that that is instrumental and the reason why we say that often and the reason that I say that often is because I don't want us to get lost in the shuffle of what church has become in our country. Churches across our nations are dying. There are churches closing. Last year, part of, as part of our denomination, I think we have 511 churches across the country um, from, obviously, the West Coast to the East Coast. Last year, we've had 517, and 14 new ones were planted. What this means is that churches are disappearing. Churches are going away. They're not existent. And so my fear in that is that when you get caught up in that, like, it stops. You start thinking, like, God, what are you up to? And then what we get to do and what we see here is that God's up to some, like, incredible things. Like, we are seeing, some of us are seeing our, our literal geographical neighbors come to know Jesus. And I just want you to all know this because I believe that my job as I'm pastoring, notice that in the Bible, you guys might not know this, but 95% of the time that the word pastor appears in the Bible, it's not in the context of a noun. What that means is a pastor is not somebody that sits and has this title. A pastor is a verb. So I pastor you. You pastor one another. Um, Andrea is probably my pastor, the greatest pastor that I have in my life. Because she pastors me. She calls me out in areas where I need to be pastored. And you guys pastor one another as well as I get to pastor you. This is why I've now changed my perspective and I don't want anybody to ever call me. You can if you want to. But you don't necessarily need to call me Pastor Matt. As much as I, I know that for some of us it's a, an authority thing and things like that, what you need to know is that all of us pastor each other. You can love one another, encourage one another, call one another out. Um, God has certainly given me the role of leading us as a church. But you got to hear me on this. We will not stop as a church until every person in Guelph has heard the name of Jesus Christ. We will not stop. I'm not going to lay off you. If I'm like constantly challenging you to get out there, talk to Jesus, talk with Jesus to someone. If I'm constantly on you about how's your missional community going, how can we invest in people that live around you, it's for the purpose of every person in the city of Guelph hearing the name of Jesus Christ. Because that's how important he is to us. And that's how important he is to God. And so my prayer is that as a church, we would not be a church that just becomes solar of, well, these are the people that kind of gather in our church, and then there's people outside and people that are inside. No, nobody is outside. Everyone is called to be inside. And we will not stop until there are churches all across this city that maybe go by the name of Church of the War, but in essence, so that every person in the city can hear the name of Jesus Christ. And if we understand that, and if my heart is that we get that, is that it will change the perspective of how we give, it'll change the perspective of how we live, it'll change the perspective of how we serve other people, because we'll go all out for it. Don't think, well, I'm, I'm kind of okay, because our mission community is like kind of at this right size. No, split it up, start new ones. 
Like we constantly need to be a multiplying movement. Many of the reasons that churches become insular and never plant churches is because they don't plant within the first few years of their church existing. So I feel like this morning, I just need to tell you, my prayer is that we would plant a second location for Church of the Ward in our first three years of existence. That's my prayer, is that this gathering would grow to maybe 150, 200, whatever one God wants to do in the first three years, and then we'd say, okay, half of you, you guys go start meeting over there, because we need another church, a gathering, a people in that geographical area. We're going to be a church that plants churches, but we're only going to do that if we step up to the calling that God has called us to and live in light of that. I truly believe that. I think God's got this incredible thing in store. We're already seeing like, like amazing like understandings. We're seeing a bit of this, but he's got so much more in store for us. And so we as a church want to be a people that believes the best of what God has for us and then like live in light of that. Uh, there are about 17,000 university students that come to Guelph every single September. 17,000. That's a crazy number. Can you imagine if, if our goal is like just with those university students? May every one of those university students hear the name of Jesus Christ? Is he's that important to us? It's crazy. Like the South End is just growing. It's going to be at Tom's house. It already is at Tom's house. It's going to continue to fill up. We will not stop until every person in this city hears the name of Jesus Christ and will say, what's another city in our nation that we need to plant a church in? Let's send people there so people can hear the name of Jesus Christ. May we not stop. Because Jesus changes people. He's changed my life. My prayer is that he's changed yours. And if he's really changed your life that much, then what's he worth to you? And if he's worth a lot, then we've got a tree that is like he's worth a lot. Because the honest truth, and you know, I've been in this kind of confession mood lately, is I think I care more about myself than I do about Jesus. But being straight up and honest, I think there are days where I care far more about myself than I do about Jesus. And I want that to change. I want to care about Jesus more than I care about myself. I want to live in light of his kingdom and not the one that I'm trying to build. If we're about that, then I believe that God is just going to bless us as a church. We're going to see people come to Christ. We're going to see miracles done. As I've said before, I don't want us to like look back like 10 years from now and go, well, that was really cool. We did a lot of neat things. No, I want us to look back and go, holy smokes, that was not us. I feel like we're a fairly fortunate group of people that we get to be sitting here in the beginning stages. I truly believe that. Where we'll get to look back and say, when there was 15 people in the room, I was one of them. When there was 20 people in the room, I was one of them. When there was 100 people in the room, I was one of them. Oh, and now there's thousands across the city. My prayer is the same in the center. We'll be able to pack out one day. So listen to me. If you're not on board for that, you don't have to part of church to work. I believe that. If that's not your vision, don't hang out here. Because you're taking a seat of somebody that could want that. Does that make sense? We're all on the same page, I hope. Good. Let's get excited because God's got incredible things in store. All right, that, that, that's supposed to like get us pumped. Okay, so we haven't hung out with Mark for a little while, and I want to get back there. And I just want to share a few things this morning about Mark because it's important. We believe studying the Bible is really, really important. And so, if you have your Bibles, go to Mark four. As we talked about before, this is kind of like a big perspective. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It's the first gospel that was written. Uh, not Mark was written first. It's the most brief uh, one that was written. Um, 
It's got 16 verses, and as you know, we've, I've shown you this before, but I hope this in some ways gives a little bit of perspective to the grand narrative of the book. Okay, so we got chapters 1 to 8, which is really the large first section. Then we've got Mark 9 to 16, which is the large second section. And as you can see, we're like plugging along, we're at four. So uh, we're only at parables. And hopefully by the end of the summer, maybe we'll be like halfway through community. But we're going to be at parables. Uh, the lower section, which you can't see at all, is like where geographically the book of Mark takes place. And the very bottom one is like this section of time. The first 10 chapters of Mark take place over three years, where the last... Um, like seven chapters of Mark takes place over one week. So Mark's clear focus at the end is like this one week of the life of Jesus is pretty significant. But here's a snapshot of the first three years of his life. Okay, so this is what we're doing. Um, the last, where we left off in Mark was we were in groups. Some of you will remember that. We were in groups and we were talking about the parable of the sower. And this is one of Jesus' most probably well-known parables where he says, there was a sower who went out and he sowed some seed in this soil. He sowed some seed there. He sowed some seed there. Some fell amongst thorns. Some fell amongst the rocks. Some of it grew. Some of it didn't. There's one good fertile soil. This is what I want you guys all to know. And then he went to his disciples and he said, hey guys, I'm going to explain this to you. So let's get on board. Let's understand what this means. And this is actually a regular practice of Jesus, where he would teach the multitude, and then he would turn to his few that were beside him, and he'd say, guys, this is what that one meant. And we're going to find out a little bit today why he does that, because it's kind of odd. Like, Jesus, why wouldn't you explain it to everybody? But Jesus reserves some of his secrets for his few. Why does he do that? And I think this is important for how we love on people, how we live amongst people, and how we talk about Jesus to other people. Now, in the time of Jesus, things were very, very different. Okay, When Jesus got up, and when he spoke, and when he used parables or these stories, there wasn't like the followers were sitting there with their like Bibles open going, oh, sweet. It's right in front of me. It's a very different context. When Jesus is saying these things, all that these people have to go off of is what he's saying. Okay, they, they didn't have a reference point. So you and I, alone in that, are very, very fortunate in that we have the Bible. Like, we have these words in front of us that we can go, what is this about? Whoa, that totally connects with what's back there. Oh, look at that. That totally connects with what's up there. For the first followers of Jesus and for the first early church, get this, they grew upon thousands upon thousands and thousands without the written word of God in front of them. So I guess the challenge is, how much more so should we be living in light of what God has done for us in the fact that we have this? Right? They didn't. All they had to go off was what the apostles said, uh, what Jesus had said, and they just trusted and believed. All right? This is uh, one thing that was said of Jesus. Jesus was a metaphorical, he used similes, he used hyperboles, he used all of these things. He was a metaphorical theologian. That is, his primary method of creating meaning was through metaphor, simile, parable, and dramatic action rather than through logic and reasoning. For some of us, we enjoy that, right? We're like, I'm not really like the philosopher kind of type, so I like the story base. Way to go, Jesus. I think that's a good thing. He created meaning like a dramatist and a poet rather than like a philosopher. All right, so imagine living in the first century with Jesus 
And this man, Jesus, this rabbi that's become famous, he's become popular. Some people believe he's satanic. He's possessed by Satan. Some people are like, eh, he's a bit of a weirdo, but so cool, I want to go listen to him. And other people are just like, no, not really interested. Actually, I'd like to have him killed. So there's all this spectrum of information, and Jesus would stand there, oftentimes in these fields, or as we learned, that he would actually like sometimes sit in a boat, and people would be like gathered on the beach. Some people would probably wait in because they just they could not like stay away from Jesus. They just wanted to hear what he had to say. And Jesus is standing there and he's presenting what he's presenting. And sometimes I think Jesus would just stand there and kind of go, look at the bird over there. This bird is like boo. Right? Like when Jesus, some of you know what passage where Jesus says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray about it. He says, but like, look at the birds. Do the birds worry about what they're going to eat tomorrow? Tomorrow? Of course not. And then Jesus says, how much more do I care about you than the birds? Right? So all imagine like sitting there, like me sitting here, maybe standing here being like, look at this sign over here about cigarettes. Like, that is totally like how our world is decaying. And the lungs are like filling with tar without Jesus. Right? Imagine that. That's, I think that's a little bit of what Jesus was like there. I know some of us smoke. Uh, God's working on you. That's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was, what was available in front of me this morning? Thanks, man. No problem. So, Jesus. Jesus. We're, we're, not, we're not angry at you. I've got stuff in my life that I do that's not good for me. So we all do things. I heard, actually, you know what's funny? This is a complete tangent, but there are faster ways to die. Anyways, let's, let's go with <laughs> Sorry, smokers. In Mark 1, uh, Jesus, we're going to talk about Jesus and his kingdom today. Because the parables that Jesus tells in this section of Mark are all about kingdom. Now, you and I are kind of twice removed from the language of kingdom, right? Like, when, when, when you and I think of kingdom, we probably don't think of what we're part of now, because it's not, right? Back in the day, and even now, I mean, there's a monarchy in Europe, but this kingdom is completely different. When there was a king, there was a kingdom, okay? And everything went through the lens of, what does the king think? And what is it like to serve under this king? Now, Jesus regularly talks about this kingdom. In Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, the kind of hypothesis of the book of Mark, this is what Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. We talked about the story of God last week. The time is fulfilled. Jesus is fulfilling it. And the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, a kingdom, especially in those days, a Roman kingdom, spanned thousands and thousands of kilometers and miles. And there was like a capital, and the king typically lived in the capital, and when the king wanted information traveling across this, the nation, he didn't have a Twitter account to get the information out. He didn't have an email list that people could subscribe to to get the information out. What he had was men on horses um, that would get on their horse and, look, 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 and start going across the nation, spreading the good news that came from the kingdom. And so when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, he's, he's referring to something like this, that there is a kingdom, there is news that needs to be spread throughout the entire kingdom. It's kind of like when that guy rides up in his horse and he's telling them good news. Uh, the Greek word for it is euangelion. Okay, we've talked about that before, euangelion. Now, for me, a good reference point, when Jesus talks about kingdom and what it actually means is in 1 Samuel 8, and to give you a bit of the history of the Israelite people, the Israelites 
came to Samuel at one point, and they said, we want a king. Prior to that, they only had, like, they kind of had a leadership of elders, leadership of different types of people, but they didn't have one sold-out king. All the nations around them did, okay? So the Israelites come to the leader Samuel at the time, and Samuel's serving as uh, their priest, and they say, we really want a king. And Samuel says, listen, God's your king. You don't need one. And they're like, no, we really, really want a king. So Samuel says, well, guys, I'll go talk to God about this, and I'll let you know what he says. So Samuel goes, spends his time with the Lord, and God says, well, you know what, Samuel, this is like super rebellious. Because, as you know, I'm supposed to be their king. But I want you to give them a king anyways. But make sure you warn them about what it's going to be like to have a king and who's going to have a kingdom. And so Samuel's like, okay, God. So Samuel goes back to the people, and he shares with them these things about what it's going to mean for them to have a king and what it's going to mean for them to be part of the kingdom. And so he comes back and he says, listen, guys, this is super rebellious. God's not excited about this. But here's what he says. This is what a king will mean for you. This is 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 to 18. He says, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He says, listen, right now, you can do what you want with your men. If you have a king, he's going to take all of your men, as many as he wants, he's going to put them in charge of his chariots, and guess what? That probably is going to mean that he's going to use them as his armies, and they could die. They're not going to be your men anymore. And the Israelites, you can imagine they're sitting there like, ah, oh, that's, that's too bad. Second reason. He will appoint himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some of these commanders will have to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Okay, guys. Secondly, he's going to take your people and he's going to employ them. And some of them are going to need to go and plow his fields, not your own anymore. This is what it's going to mean to have a kingdom. Okay, like, tell us more. He will take your daughters to be cooks and perfumers. Like, imagine this. Those of us with uh, daughters, okay? If you live in this kingdom, your daughters at some point are going to be taken to be cooks in the king's castle or in any of his places that you want to. You'd think they'd turn off from there. No. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and give them to his servants. You're going to lose the best of your stuff. It's going to go to the king. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. Not only is he going to take your vineyards, he's also going to take a tenth of what you own. He will take the best of your men and women and put them to work. You're not your own anymore. He will take a tenth of your flock and you will be his slaves. Lovely. You will cry out to God because of your king, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So all of these things, over and over and over again, and guess what the Israelite people said? Thanks, Samuel. We still want a king. And so Samuel says, okay. And then God, in his amazing grace, okay, remember, this is rebellion. God, in his amazing grace, says, if the king loves and serves me, I will bless you. I'll bless you. You'll get what, you know, I'll serve. You'll be served. You'll have everything that you need. You're going to be good. Well, as we know... <laughs> The kings aren't super good, right? First, we have Saul, first king of Israel. He messes up, tries to kill David, who's going to be the second king. David steps up to the plate. What happens with David? Well, it's almost an old story of David Bathsheba, right? Sees this hot, naked lady on top of her house, David. He should have been at war with his men, but instead was at home, gazing at naked chicks from the top of his palace. Sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. We know the rest of the story. God takes the child. If you follow the devotionals, that was part of this past week. So then after, after David, the kingdom is split. Things are going bad, 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 bad. And at one point, it gets worse and worse and worse. 
these kings, the whole nation gets split. Another country, Assyria, comes in, takes over. Another nation after that comes in, takes over that nation. Another nation comes in and takes over. We have the Persians, we have the Syrians. We have like Alexander the Great and the Greeks. They come in and take over. And then we land with the Romans who take over. And then Jesus shows up in the middle of that Roman Empire. So for the Israelite people, they understand kingdom. So when Jesus says, I'm going to come and offer you a kingdom, and when he teaches on the kingdom, for them, it's not just, oh, cool, we're part of the Roman Empire. They're thinking lineage. They're thinking history. They're thinking from when we were at first a small little nation, everything has now changed. And this kingdom sucks. So if you're going to come and talk to us about a different kingdom, I'm excited about it. Okay? So that's kingdom for the, for the people of the Jews at this time when Jesus comes and starts talking about kingdom. So kingdom for Jesus was central to his entire ministry. Um, he shows in his life why this kingdom is new and far better than any other kingdom. He's going to show them. This is why he heals people. This is why he accepts people that are not accepted. Because for his kingdom, he's like, everybody's going to be accepted. We're not going to have Jew or Gentile. Everybody's in. It's a party. Uh, this is good for us that are Gentiles. If you're not a Jew this morning and you're here, this is good news. You're now accepted in Jesus' kingdom. If you were um, not part of Jesus' kingdom, you would not necessarily be accepted. All right? And then Jesus says this, the kingdom is here and now. It's not some future thing. It's not like this foreign invader is going to come in. Jesus says, the kingdom is here and now. You and I can actually experience this. We can live in light of the fact that Jesus is our king in our nation and land nowadays. Why this is important is because for me, I don't bow down to Stephen Harper. I don't bow down to Kathleen Wynne. I obey the laws of this land because they've been set before me. But at the end of the day, I don't put my hope and trust in Kathleen Wynne and the liberals. I wouldn't have put my hope and trust in the conservatives. I wouldn't have put my hope and trust in the NDP. Because at the end of the day, my number one citizenship is the kingdom of God and Jesus is my king. That, that's where it's at. And so some people came up to me around, the, around this election time and said, Matt, who are you going to vote for? I said, I'm kind of indifferent towards the whole thing. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, they're all like different platforms, whatever, what, what, and whatnot. I said, in person, like, none of them were really taking stances that would infringe upon my rights as a Christian in the kingdom of God. Oh, okay, so what does that mean? Well, this is what I believe, okay? And this is what I think is going to have to happen as time goes on. If the laws of the land infringe with our beliefs as Christians, we've got to step up. All right? So if we're all called to contribute towards, uh, it could be anything, it could be like just a basic law of, as, as a Christian that the government says, no, you can't do that anymore. We've got to step up and be willing to go to battle and say, sorry, that's not the way it runs in our kingdom. We want our religious freedom and right, blah, 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 blah. Other than that, I don't think we can complain too much because we're just going to lose our rights. Anyways, that's a whole other topic. A little bit of that and politics. It's not very interesting, so don't worry about it. Anyways. Mark 4, 21, all right? So that, the reason I said all that is because I simply wanted to set us up because Jesus in this section of Mark is talking all about kingdom. What's this kingdom like versus the kingdom that you live in, okay? Let's start in Mark 4, 21. And he said to them, remember, Jesus is using parables here. He's using stories to illustrate a larger point. The people who might hear might not get it. He's okay with that. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? or under a bed, and not on a stand, okay? Jesus, once again, is, is a very obvious communicator, right? He's not, he's not like really searching for things. All of these things he's listed, a basket, a bed, and a stand, are all regular furnishings for a common Jewish household. He says, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. 
And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. All right, so let me explain to you what this all means. I got four points, and I think you'll enjoy them. Number one, the purpose of the lamp is, the purpose of the lamp and, and coming of light, Jesus, is to be set up and visible to all. Jesus is basically saying, this news of my kingdom is supposed to be on display for everybody to see and hear. What this means for you and for me is that if we've got the news of Jesus within us, we should be setting it up so people can take note and see it. Right? Like you don't have a lamp, you don't put it under your bed if you want your room to be lit up. Where do you put it? You put it on the stand so it can illuminate the whole room. It's the same way in our lives. The lamp is to be placed in a place so they can expose what is going on. All right? Number two, there are things hidden and concealed but for a purpose in order that they might be revealed at the proper junction or time. This is like an amazing illustration, so I hope you're ready for it. Surprise parties. All right? Surprise parties are awesome. All right? If you ever want to throw me a surprise party, I'll be very excited when the surprise finally gets revealed. But there is a reason that surprise parties are a surprise. Right? Like, if this is good news that it's someone's birthday. It's good news that a party's going to happen. But you want to hold off telling somebody about the surprise party until when? So the surprise can actually come to light. What Jesus is saying is there are going to be some things about what I'm going to share to you. It's not quite yet the right time for that to be shared. So the news of my kingdom, the news of all these little secrets that I'm telling you disciples, there is a point where you want to hear about this and you'll be ready to hear it, but there is a point when you might not get it yet. What this means is for you and me is that there are probably people in your life that if you were to just run up to after reunion today and be like, yo, I gotta tell you about Jesus. It might not be the right time, right? Like, let's be honest. Sometimes bringing up our faith with people that don't believe is sometimes a little awkward. Sometimes you just need to wait for when the Holy Spirit says, right now is the right time to mention me. Because this is what Jesus is saying. You're not yet ready to hear what needs to be exposed. You will be, though, but I'm not yet ready to be exposed. Then Jesus, just very obviously, if you have ears that work, use them. So whenever Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, let you hear, he's really saying, if you've got ears, just very practically, you should use them. Which is important for you and for me, because sometimes we got ears and we don't really use them. Right? We just kind of sit. Lose touch. Jesus is saying, if you've got ears to hear, use them. And then, uh, fourthly, what you do with what you receive and hear matters in the future kingdom. And if you use what you receive and hear in good ways, more will be added to you. This is all about rewards. Some of us have a vision, and I don't believe this is biblical, that when we die and we go to heaven, we'll be standing there, and we'll get, like, whiplash for everything we did wrong. No, remember, Jesus Christ covered all of our sin, so we're not going to stand there and get whiplash for the wrong things that we did. But... There will be rewards for those of us that did much with what we were given. So this is really, really important because you and I live in a very blessed nation. You and I live in a nation where we have a practice of religious freedom. Um, some of us have been to other nations where that's not necessarily the case. We must use what we've been given for the good of other people. And in the same way, we'll be asked one day by God saying, did you use what you were given for what you can use it with. Uh, Jesus tells a parable at another time of a guy that received like 
a big sum, and this guy took the big sum and used it well. Then he talked about a guy who took his small sum, buried it, and then when the master returned, the master was like, so what'd you do with my sum? The guy's like, buried it, here you go, same stuff is back to you. And the guy's like, you didn't go and invest it, you didn't go and use it for the kingdom, you just buried it? He's like, yeah, totally. Well, I'm going to take your sum, I'm going to give it to the other guy, because he used more of what he was given. It's kind of like the whole Spider-Man thing, right? Um, remember the Spider-Man quote? What is it? It's, it's not coming to me. Um, with great power comes great responsibility. Remember Uncle Ben's telling Spider-Man that, like in the car? And it like becomes like the, like the climax for his entire life. It's like, yeah, I'm Spider-Man. i got to use this. <laughs> I'm a big superhero guy. But that's basically, in essence, a little bit of what Jesus is saying. So the guys who wrote Spider-Man got it from Jesus. Take that. Um, but the point is, again, if you have been given a lot, you're supposed to use a lot for the kingdom. As I said, we live in a blessed nation. God's given us resources. We should be using them for his glory and for his kingdom. And then lastly, a receptive person is given more than an unreceptive one. If you're a receptive person ready to hear, God will bestow upon you great things. But if you're not, not so much. Uh, here's a good quote. There shall be given over and above, not to those who hear, but to those who think on what they hear. The more a man thinks, the more he will understand. And the less a man thinks, the less his power of understanding will become. We all get that? There shall be given over and above, not to those who hear, but to those who think on what they hear. The more a man thinks, the more he will understand. The less a man thinks, the less his power of understanding will become. Another one. Whoso hath attention, knowledge will be given to him. And for him who hath not, the seed of knowledge will be taken. For as diligence causes the seed to grow, negligence destroys it. Basically, what do you do with what you've been given? If you take what you've been given, you think upon it, you ponder it, you use it, more will be added to you. If you take what you hear and you're just kind of like, I'm going to keep it stuffed up, you're not going to get to be part of the activity of what is more. What is God wanting to do in and through me? All right? Verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What is Jesus telling us about the kingdom in this second parable? Is that you and I, we must not negate our responsibility. One, spreading the seed. Two, observing. And three, harvesting. You and I have a responsibility with the good news that we have been given. Right? It's not like when we're talking to someone about Jesus, we completely stand back. No, we're given the responsibility and role to go and take the good news of this seed to other people. Right? We do have a responsibility. Some people live with the mentality of, no, like, God's kind of doing his thing, so I don't need to do anything at all. Jesus is saying his parable. No, you have a responsibility. You can't negate that responsibility. You have a responsibility to take the news of me to other people. It's just the way that it is. It's your role, it's your responsibility. That's how you live in my kingdom, and that's how you're a citizen in my kingdom. You take the news. Number two, though, the kingdom of God grows without human effort and understanding. Notice this guy, he just goes out day and night, he observes it, but it's just growing. What this means is that we will probably stand back when it comes to church with the Lord and go, what the heck is going on? This doesn't make any sense, because we are like weird human beings, and God is just like, growing this thing, and we have no idea what's going on. 
Uh, over in India and in other places like that, people are seeing miracles like crazy. Uh, my devotional yesterday was just about simply believing what God's doing. People like are being raised from the dead. I was meeting with a group of uh, guys this morning, or not this morning, this past week, and the, he was talking about how this woman heard the message of Jesus Christ through like slides, like pictures, was changed by it, then went and raised seven people from the dead and led like a hundred people to Christ. Crazy. That's what God's doing, like in other places of the world. Stuff is going on because someone's like, here's my story, I'm changed by it, I'm going to go tell, tell people about it. And God is, through the Holy Spirit, using these people to do incredible things. God wants to do the same thing here in our country, through you and through me. How amazing is that? Can you imagine you wake up one day and then you go raise somebody from the dead? What a day that would be. <laughs> like my goal for today. Like <laughs> Nuts. God is doing this stuff in other places. And he's calling us to be his people that are willing to be used in that way. God does things in his kingdom that we're going to look at and go, wow. Some of us have friends who have been coming and part of Church of the War, and their lives have been changed. And you're kind of looking at it going, okay, I didn't do that. There's no way I had any influence in what, what God just did there. Like, CJ, did you guys have any idea? Like, when you think about CJ and Stacy, were you like, yo, we're going to like, Minister these people and their lives are going to change? Oh, we knew it was going to happen. You knew it was going to happen, <laughs> but you couldn't do it, right? You just thought you'd feed them. Which worked out well for us. Which worked out well for you guys. <laughs> and then God just got in the mix and like, they changed their lives. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. We're going to look on it and go, I don't get it. This is weird. Uh, here's another quote by a guy named Sweet. Sweet name. The mystery of growth still puzzles farmers and scientists of today with all our modern knowledge. But nature's secret processes do not fail to operate because we are ignorant. This secret and mysterious growth of the kingdom in the heart and life is the point of this beautiful parable of Mark. When man has done his part, the actual process of growth is beyond his reach of comprehension. Did that. So there's still a lot of people confused around this corn thing grows. How does this work? It doesn't mean that the corn doesn't grow. It still does. And with us, when we spread this seed and it starts growing, we're like shocked by like what it's doing. But we don't stop spreading the seed because it's like confusing. We keep doing it and God continues to show up and does incredible things. All right, you're going to like this next one because I love it. And he said, this is verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable should we use for it? So Jesus is like, so I've just told you these crazy things about this lamp and these seeds growing. Now, what can I actually do to kind of illustrate this the best way that I can humanly possibly do it? All right? He's like just thinking out loud here. This is what he said. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when, sows, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. It puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. All right, so for you and I, we don't do a lot of work with like seeds or anything like that. We're going to get to the point here, okay? What is Jesus saying? We must not... That's the wrong part, sorry. Okay, so this is a picture of a mustard seed. Sweet, eh? So that's a mustard seed. So Jesus is saying, what am I going to compare this kingdom to? Oh, how about that, like the tiniest seed ever? Okay. That's a small, small seed. Now this is what happens when a mustard seed takes root in the ground. You ready? Yeah, let's see it. Boom! 
it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. Now I did some research on mustard seeds because it's just great news. Number one, this is what's said of uh, the mustard seed. It's the least of all seeds at the time of its sowing, yet after sowing, it springs up and becomes the greatest of all herbs. All right, so it starts tiny, gets enormous. Number two, the mustard bush was an extremely noxious and dangerous plant as it threatened to take over whatever area its seed finally took root in. It is nearly impossible to get rid of the plant because as soon as the seed falls, it germinates at once. All right? So imagine some of us, like, we grew up with Lily of the Valley outside, and it's, like, beautiful, smells nice for a lot of the time, but that stuff, like, once it takes root, boom, you're done. It's going everywhere. And I know for us, it was a bit obnoxious because we had to go try to pull the weeds out of it, and the stuff was just growing everywhere. The same is of the mustard plant. When it starts growing, you can't control it. And when people try to pull it, the seeds fall out, and boom. It's like you can't do anything about it. Okay, so Jesus, there's purpose in the reason he uses the mustard seed. Then thirdly, what is Jesus doing with the mustard seed? Jesus deliberately likens the kingdom of God to a weed, which called home various unwanted wanted birds, sinners, tax collectors, and Gentiles a threat to the early existent garden or field of early Judaism. So the Jews thought, this is what your kingdom's going to be like, Jesus. And then Jesus walks in and says, actually, my kingdom's not like the annoying mustard seed bush. Because you can't control it. And birds are allowed to come into my plants. I bet you you don't like, this, like the sinners and tax collectors and yours. So Jesus' point when he uses the mustard seed is actually pretty countercultural to say, uh, my kingdom's like obnoxious, dangerous, and ridiculous. So this is the line that I kind of came up with to summarize that. While the kingdom of God may begin small, it will not remain small, eventually becoming the largest, most noxious, dangerous, and weed-like threat to the false kingdoms of then and today. This is good news. This is good news. It's the greatest kingdom ever. You and I try to create these little false kingdoms, these idols in our lives. And Jesus is like, you're, you're paying attention to that. Why don't we go with my kingdom? Because it's the most dangerous, noxious, and most infectious kingdom ever. It's unlike anything you'll ever experience. And to the Jews of that day that are going, this kingdom in the Roman Empire sucks. Jesus is like, don't worry, guys. This is going to be far better. It's the same thing he says to you and to me. This kingdom that you're living in, this mentality of this is my life, this is the way we're going to do things, no, it's going to be completely different. And how do we know that this kingdom has kind of taken root? Well, Jesus started with his early followers. He had 12, one dropped off, Judas. He cared more about money than he did actually Jesus. Then Jesus had his 70. And then 500 people, once Jesus resurrected, saw Jesus. Christianity, people who say they believe in Jesus, is now the largest religion in the world. All right, now, obviously, there's a difference between people who say they love Jesus and people who actually love Jesus. But I think this kind of proves the point that Jesus wasn't lying here, was he? When he said, like, this thing that I'm starting with you guys, it looks really small to the Jews. It looks really small to the leaders of Judaism. But get ready. This thing's going to explode. And look at us now. We're all recipients of this message that began over there in Galilee. Like, clearly that message spread. And if you have been privy to meeting somebody that has been changed by the life of Jesus and the message of Jesus, it just takes root and they can't stop talking about it. Some of us who came to know Jesus more early on in our life, 
we sometimes miss that first aspect of like that first couple, like those first months when I came to know Jesus was just amazing. Right? It's like this, our whole like world was broken like apart. It was like, this is unreal. And we can't stop talking about it. And that's the same infectious way that it's still supposed to be in our lives. When you've been touched by the message of Jesus, you're like a mustard seed that once falls, goes everywhere. Like dandelions. Right? Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God's like dandelions. You can't get rid of them. They're annoying. They're obnoxious. But so is my kingdom. Because you're not going to be able to get rid of them. So what this means is that even though all these churches are dying year after year after year, we got the promise of Jesus that says, well, my kingdom, it's going to keep going. Whether it's a year in Canada, maybe it won't be. Maybe it'll be over in India and all these other places. But Christianity is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. We don't gotta like get freaked out, like, oh no, it's gonna happen with Christianity. Jesus is like, no, don't worry about it. It's like the, it's like this mustard plant. It's like these dandelions. And then Jesus wraps it up, and this is what he puts as the close. This is Mark kind of summarizing what he said. With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So this is Mark's kind of way of wrapping it up. And what are we supposed to take from this? One. Part of our audience is receptive and able to hear, and part of it isn't. There are going to be people, and we're going to have the message of Jesus within our bones. And we're going to be spreading the seed of the news of Jesus, and for whatever reason, there's going to be some people that are going to be like, totally ready for it. There's going to be other people like, no, not, not for me. And other people are just like, obnoxious boys. You idiots over there. Like, new atheism. Right? Atheism used to be, you guys do your thing, we just don't believe in it. Now atheism has become, it's like, run into you with like, spears and stuff. It's just this new way. So we kind of have these three target groups. And Jesus straight up says, listen, there are going to be some people that are going to be receptive, some people won't, and there's going to be some people that are going to hate you because of what you believe. And that's fine. It's just the way that it is. The kingdom of God is still going to grow. And then, uh, what's that one? Sorry, I thought I was Real understanding comes not merely through the transfer of information but through being an ongoing fellowship with the one who spoke these things in the first place. All right? So what's the other reason that Jesus tells this stuff to only his disciples? It's because the true place where these disciples could learn what they meant is through Jesus. And there are things for you and for me that we're going to read maybe in the Bible or we're not going to be sure about it, and where are we supposed to go to get the true understanding of what it means? Jesus. Right? To the one who spoke it, to the one who gives us understanding. Guys, my excitement in these passages and in these verses is that, like, I just, like, I get hope in it, right? It's like, this is not going to stop. And the way I started by saying, we will not stop as a church until every person in wealth hears the name of Jesus. Like, that's just, like, that's kingdom, right? That, that this is something we can live in now. This is something we can be excited about now. This is something that God's up to, and we just get to be part of it. Like, it's absolutely amazing. And so when Jesus is standing there and he's saying all these things, just imagine being the first people being like, uh, this thing you're starting is going to grow that big? Probably not. Right? It's probably some point somewhere you were thinking, you think this is really going to grow like that, Matt? Yeah, you got to be kidding us. No. He's like, no. Mustard seed, mustard plants, it's going to be great. It's the same thing he says to us. Guys, get stoked. God is on the move. His kingdom's not going to fail. It lasts forever and ever. It's the only thing that will never fail or be gone. Ever and ever and ever. Everything else that we put our trust in, apart from Jesus, is going to die. There's going to be no end to it. It's going to be like, run over. My fear with that is like, what if I get to the end of the week and I did nothing for Jesus? All of that's the waste. 
It's his kingdom and him. It's the only thing that will last forever. That's pretty convicting. I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that. Wow. I just spent a lot of time and money doing this other thing. That's all a waste compared to this. This is why he says, like, invest your money in this, because this is, like, the most important thing you can invest your money in. Like, crazy. Right? You can spend all your money out there on these other things, but this is the only thing that lasts. And what matters the most? Boom, that hurt. So um, let me just pray, and then we're going to sing some songs to celebrate the fact that this is good news, right? Remember, this is good news. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we can live in light of this kingdom. God, I pray that we would not lose sight of this. Jesus, may we focus on this. Jesus, if this kingdom is truly what you say that it is, I pray that we would live like it is. And Jesus, we sing now. We thank you that we get to sing. And God, I pray that you just have an awesome afternoon. Uh, maybe even give us an opportunity, God, this afternoon to share this seed with somebody else. We thank you, Lord. Amen.